0: Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Let's pray. A merciful and magnificent Father, we pray that your, your steadfast love would come to us, that your salvation would come according to what you have promised through the gospel, that we would seek to be able to trust you and your word, That you would not take your word of truth from our mouths. That we would set our hope upon your word and your promises. As we seek to keep your law continually forever and ever. We pray that you would help us, Lord. Fill us with your spirit this very evening. That you might not merely be able to help us understand this passage, but seek to be able to apply it to our lives. Convict us. Bring us to our knees. That we might be able to see the hope of the gospel. But also, Lord, not merely just convict us. Change us. Change us that we might be able to seek you above all things. We pray in Christ's holy and blessed name. Amen. Hear now the word, Lord, from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Please take heed how you hear. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in that day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the words of the Lord will endure forever. If there ever was to be a theme verse in our household, not one that we would choose to put up above on our wall, you know, in a nice decal or something like that, I mean a theme verse that we repeat quite often in our household. We repeat to our children quite often. We repeat to ourselves as parents quite often, and probably not often enough. But it is this verse, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. A theme verse, uh, an image comes to mind as that of, of one pleasant day when we were riding, I was pulling the children in a, in a bike trailer behind me, and, and that sweet moment when they're asleep and you're going downhill, and you think, oh, this is delightful. And then you need to turn around. And no longer you're going downhill, but you're going uphill. Before their weight helped you down the hill, and now their weight causes you to strain up the hill. And as you're pushing and straining and that sweet moment is now gone awry, it's amiss, the children have awoken themselves. And now they're not quiet, they're grumbling and complaining. As you're pedaling up the hill, sweat dripping from your face and tears from theirs, as they're longing, as they're famished from their tiresome ride. They have no drink, they have no Food, they're touching each other and here you are in yourself and you think, do all things without grumbling and complaining and as you're screaming at them to do all things without grumbling and complaining. And here Paul is writing to the church in Philippi and he's, he's tell, told them to do all things. And we must understand here this verse. Paul is explaining that they're to work out all Uh, their own salvation with fear and trembling as a corporate body working out their salvation. One commentator explains they're to work it out in two ways of working it out in a way of witness as they're showing this to others, shining their light brightly, but also through worship, through their sacrifice. And in this whole section, Paul is exhorting the church to live in this life of unity, Being of the same mind, the same spirit. Having this mind amongst yourselves. Living out that life worthy of the gospel as he explains in chapter 1, verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear from you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side in the faith of the gospel. And here he is writing to the corporate body, that call to unity. And how does he do that? Really, one thing in this portion, this section of Scripture, one point, and he, he does not try and hide it, he, he puts it right at the front, do all things without grumbling or disputing. He lays out the command, he gives the purpose, the final result, and then he speaks of their sacrifice through their worship. There ever was a verse that we need to take to heart. It would be this, particularly for myself. Prone to wander, you might have heard. I'm more prone to grumble, Lord, I feel it. But to understand this, what does it then mean that Paul says, the command is quite simple, do all things without grumbling or disputing. But the purpose that he lays out here, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Does this mean that if you don't grumble, then you get to heaven? This is where justification comes through, through not grumbling? Is this Paul's theology? How then do you become blameless and innocent? Is it merely just because you do not grumble? We need to understand two passages of Scripture to be able to comprehend what Paul is teaching us in this passage. The first is Deuteronomy chapter 32. And if you turn back there, Deuteronomy chapter 32, we need to understand the context of what is happening in this time. Here Deuteronomy is written to the to the generation who was there who went through the passover who saw the crossing of the Red Sea very young children and they saw and then they were in the wilderness for 40 years some of this generation had never been slaves in Egypt some of this generation had never been in Egypt they were born in the wilderness And here, Deuteronomy is that last portion of Moses' ministry before they're going to cross over the Jordan into the promised land, finally take hold of that promised land. And here, Moses is about to depart to be with the Lord. In chapter 31, he he speaks of of Joshua as he's to succeed Moses. Moses explains that he's 120 years old. He's no longer able to go out and come in. His body knows the the weight of time. And he knows there's not much sand left in that hourglass. And he reads this law, the law given in Deuteronomy to this generation. And he instructs them to be able to have this law and hold this law. And then Joshua is commissioned Passed on. This is important when we think about the, the time and place of the church in Philippi. Paul realizes that he has not long on this earth, as we will see. So finally Joshua is commissioned and he goes into breaks into song in chapter 32. And this song he writes and he sings in the assembly of Israel. In verse 4, Moses explains the rock, his work is perfect. In all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. This is a God who has shown his power, his strength to all of Israel, bringing them out, conquering kings, saving them, delivering them, providing for them. Song of praise to God, but yet look at what Moses says in chapter verse five. And they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children. They, because they are blemished, and they are a crooked and twisted generation. Here Paul flips this understanding and says that do all things without grumbling and complaining. Well, what does he mean when he speaks of those who grumble and complain? Well, if you know the story of Exodus, you know the story of the people. This is one of their great follies. Exodus chapter 15, another song of Moses. And here they are, they've crossed the Red Sea. The Lord has delivered them and saved them. They are free Years of bondage, years of hard oppression, going getting straw, making bricks. And here they, they see this horses flung into the sea. There's this song. Miriam sings a song, and then what do we notice? In verse twenty two, and Moses made set out Moses, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went in the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they would not drink the water because Marah, because it was bitter, therefore it was called Marah. And the people grumbled. Three days into the journey, these plagues that have, have gone through, they've seen God's hand, and they find water finally, and it's bitter. And what do the people do? They grumble. It doesn't take long. Look at chapter 16. And they went set out from Elam, and the congregation of the people came to the wilderness of Sin, which is Elam and Sinai, the 15th day of the second month, and they departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Here they are, they're grumbling again. You turn out of your driveway, and you haven't even driven anywhere, and the children are grumbling in the back. Chapter 17. And all the congregation of the people moved from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. And therefore the people quarreled with Moses. Give us water to drink. Here they are, they're, they're saved, they're on their way to the promised land, and what do they do? They grumble and complain. But specifically in Numbers, Numbers chapter 11, here they are. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord and all their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Not very often is that word, the anger of the Lord was kindled. But here it is in chapter 11, and specifically because they're grumbling about their misfortunes. And here they are, they're grumbling and complaining. But specifically in chapter 14. Here the spies are finally sent out. They're free. They're saved. God's provided for them in many different ways. And here they're sent out to go and spy out the land of Canaan, the promised land, swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, the one in which they're departed to be able to go and make home. And they send out spies into the land. And and it's not that they come back and they say the land is not what it was promised. They said, the land is great. They come back bearing this great cluster of grapes. They've got to carry it between two poles with two men. They say, in verse 27 of chapter 13 of Numbers, We came to land which you sent, and it flows with milk and honey, and, it is, and it's fruit. They say the promised land is exactly how it was promised. But... We do not believe the Lord can give what he promised. The people are in there are too big, too strong. We looked at them and we are like grasshoppers to them. And then chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better off for us to go back to Egypt? They said to another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Uh, you could spend a lot of time here in this chapter, but here they're crumbling against Moses, yet it is Moses, the mediator, who saves them through this role. It is it is Aaron who who eventually, in chapter 17, saves them and, and ultimately saves them from their grumbling and complaining. But here they are. They're, they've given this promise of life in this new land, and here what they get is they said, wish we would die, and that's exactly what they get. I get this word of death many times in in the end of that chapter in verses 20 to 38. Your death replies, hear death, you will die in the wilderness. Lord answers Moses and Aaron and says, how long will the wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel as they grumble against me. As they have said, that is what will happen. And so here, Deuteronomy, Moses is speaking to that generation. As their fathers and mothers were grumblers and complainers in the desert. Here he said, they're the ones who dealt corruptly with the Lord. They're no longer His children. They are blemished. They're a crooked and twisted generation. And Paul says, do not be like the Israelites in the wilderness. Do not grumble and complain, because they're not grumbling and complaining against the conditions in which they find themselves in. All of their grumblings had a basis. Oh, wish we were back in Egypt. Wasn't it great? The leeks and the cucumbers that were there. Well, they don't mention the gathering of the straw, which was a heavy burden upon their back. But the Lord specifically says that they're not grumbling against the conditions. They're grumbling against me. They're not trusting in my promises. And here Moses says, do not be like that generation. Do not grumble and complain. In the end of that chapter, in chapter 32, here Moses says... In verse 44, Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, and he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses finished speaking all these words to all of Israel, he said, take to heart all the words which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, and they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going to over in Jordan to possess. Here, this is what Paul speaks of in the word of life. The word of life, the promise of Christ in the the shadows of the law. And Paul is explaining here in Philippians chapter two that do not be like the Israelites in the wilderness work out your fear and sal- your salvation in fear and trembling as a corporate body as you look unto Christ as God works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure that you would do all things without grumbling and complaining among whom you shine as lights in the world now this is a quote from Daniel chapter 12 Daniel's finishing up in this this world and, and the world is is, is chaotic and here he says that here there are some people, wise people he calls them, who will shine as bright as the stars. Christ uses this imagery in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, let your light shine before all men so that men might see and glorify your Father in heaven. So what is all this, The, the passage in Daniel, the The Deuteronomy 32 have to do with the Philippians. Here we need to understand an important time in this church. Here Paul has a a strong connection to this church as he planted this church in Philippi from that Bible study by the river. And Paul is in prison, and Paul hopes to be able to see them. But one echo that is found throughout Philippians for a passage, that, a book that often is called a book about rejoicing in the Lord, he mentions death quite frequently. That he is not sure if he is going to be able to visit the church in Philippi. You see that there in verse 27? So, whether I come and see you or I am absent. Or in verse 12. So, now only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Or in verses 16 to 17. He's speaking of being a drink offering poured out in full. Whether he's there or not, there to hold to the promise of the gospel. That's why I think it's important that now he then goes in to speak about Timothy and Epaphroditus. That here Paul is like Moses about to go to the Lord. And here is the next generation, Timothy and Epaphroditus, that God has raised up to be able to help the church through what they are going to face. And here he says, Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Do not be like the church under age in the wilderness. They had been saved, redeemed. They had the promised land right at their foot, and they saw it. And yet what they did was they grumbled and complained. They didn't trust the Lord to be able to save them. And here the church in Philippi is divided. We do not know what it is about. But Utica and Syndicate, Paul encourages and tells them to agree in the Lord. Don't grumble and complain. Stand firm in the Lord. And so, specifically in this context, Paul is speaking and addressing the church and saying, do all things, all of you, without grumbling and complaining. Actually, quite often, actually in the New Testament, the warning to be able to show, um, to be able to not grumble, is actually paired with other people. Christians. Here Paul is addressing the church, calling them to unity of same mind, same spirit, having the mind of Christ Jesus in humility and also in his exaltation. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9 says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. James in James chapter 5 says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Why are Christians not to grumble? Well, there's many reasons, I think, Ultimately, the the story in the wilderness is they they saw their situations and their circumstances, and and they weren't merely just looking at their circumstances. They were grumbling against God, grumbling against God's leaders, which he had chosen and placed over them, grumbling about their conditions. We grumble today because we, we should not grumble because we've been delivered from slavery. We've been delivered from sin. Why would we want to go back? We shouldn't grumble because we've been bought with a price. That we belong not to ourselves. If this is the condition and situation the Lord has us in, then we shouldn't grumble against that situation because ultimately we're grumbling that God has placed us in that situation. We shouldn't grumble because we have the promise of eternity before us. We shouldn't grumble because we've seen the glorious truth of the gospel. But ultimately, grumbling is seeking that we find ourselves that God has not given us something. There is something that we lack. And the Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes from our Father. And we look to our Father and we say, we don't have that perfect gift. You, therefore, are not giving us that perfect gift. You are, therefore, not a loving Father. Jesus says that even sinners, sinner dads, know how to give good good gifts. The contrast there is not, look at all these great dads. It says you guys who are bad are even good dads to your children when they ask. But how much time do we spend grumbling? Grumbling against things that the Lord has done and placed us in. We grumble about our life, or our wife, or our husband, or our children. We look at others and look at what they have. And we think, why can't we have that? Maybe when we don't even grumble against other people, we grumble against ourselves thinking what we once could do. We think, why me now? Why is this happening here? I wish I had better health. I wish I had more time. I wish I had more um, brains. Or I wish whatever it might be, we grumble and complain. Now, it's easy for me. I do it all the time. I look at what others have, and I look at what I don't have. Other materially or, or personality. And I think I just long. But even that longing, that coveting of that is sin in itself. Because what that sin is, is based upon this truth that I don't believe God has given me all that I need. If God had given me a better personality, then maybe I could... Do something else, whatever that might be, whatever reasoning is the basis of this, is it all is sin. Spurgeon says that discontentment are like weeds in a garden. that they grow wherever you want. they grow anywhere. The discontentment will spring up. Doesn't matter. Even if you had the nicest garden, weeds still appear. But the truth is that all of us need to be gardeners in our own garden of discontentment. You look at someone with a nice garden, you don't really see that they have dirty hands. But a green thumb often has a dirty pair of gloves to be able to thrive and cause that garden to grow. And some of us need to employ a more severe approach in our life when it comes to discontentment? Do we need a weed eater or a plow or roundup? But what are we to do? A command to be able to merely just not grumble or complain is is helpful. But what are we to do with that? Well, Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32 says, Look to the word of life. Paul uses that phraseology here in Philippians. The gospel. Look to God and what He has done. Look at not what you are lacking, look at what you have got. The the people in the wilderness didn't realize that they didn't have leeks and they didn't have cucumbers, but they're about to go into the promised land in which God had promised them that there would be flowing with milk and honey these grapes that were luscious. Here they are complaining about leeks and cucumbers, and yet on the other side was this glorious promise of this land in which they could grow anything they wanted. Freedom. Look to what God has given to you. Live in His means and His word. The Apostle James, as he's speaking about grumbling and complaining, uses the example of suffering and patience. The prophets. But he says later, in chapter 5, he says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Here he uses the blessedness of Job. Job. Now, none of us would often look to the book of Job and say, oh, what a great story of how God blessed him. Actually, the blessing came through God taking things away from him. That God had a purpose in all of this, to be able to test and show Job's faithfulness and his steadfastness. The Lord was compassionate and merciful upon him. to be able to see and claim Job's statement of contentment right in the very second chapter, where Job's wife says, just curse God and die. But Job says to her, you speak if one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? Shall we not receive evil? That God is the one blessed is he who gives and blessed is he who takes away. Blessed is the name of the Lord. We need to be able to understand that we, we, we take our complaints to the Lord, we don't complain against the Lord. We take our hearts and our pleas and our thanksgiving and praise to Him. Seen Moses' solution, James' solution, Job's solution. What does Paul say? Paul says that we are to rejoice. He says that right at the very end, as he speaks of this, this drink offering that he has been offered to, to do, that here the church in Philippi is sending this offering to Paul. We'll read about that in chapter 4. And here... Paul is saying that he is merely a drink offering being poured out upon their offering, their worship, which is pleasing and acceptable to God. But he says he rejoices, he is glad. That so to the church in Philippi should be glad and rejoice in him. That he says this contentment in Christ is is where you find your full pleasure. Rejoice in the Lord always, I say it again, rejoice, he writes in chapter 4. He ends chapter 4 by speaking of how he has found contentment. As he speaks of their offering which is given to him. But he says that he has learned in whatever situation to be content. How true it is that the weeds of discontentment come up, but we need to go to school of contentment to learn. He says that I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. His contentment is found in rejoicing in Christ The one who gives the law, that writes the law upon our hearts that we might be able to carry it out. The one who has conquered the law. The one who is life itself. I'm going to finish with a quote from Thomas Fuller. He says, Contentment consists not in adding more fuel, but in taking away some fire. Not in multiplying of wealth, but in subtracting men's desires worldly riches like nuts tear many clothes in getting them spoil many teeth in cracking them but fill no belly with eating them obstructing only the stomach with toughness and filling the guts with wild- windiness yea our souls may nurse sufficient then be satisfied with thy earthly things. He that at first, though a thousand pounds much may be any man, will afterwards think ten is too little for himself. Contentment is not in finding those things we seek to find contentment in. Contentment is finding Christ in any situation we are in contentment is giving thanks and praise to the Lord and resting upon Him. Therefore, Paul instructs us to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Let's go to Lord in prayer, let us pray. O oh, gracious and most merciful Father, we thank you for thy word. We thank you for the promises that we find therein. Help us, Lord, for we know this is a tall order to ask to be able to do of our own accord. Help us to find contentment in Christ in all and any circumstance. Help us to see not that we need more of things. We merely need what we have, which is Christ. We pray all of these things through his holy and blessed name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook